Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. And um, I promised everybody that I would be on time, so... All right, 30 minutes, but don't hold me to it. Because when I start talking about journalism in Cuba, uh, either one of those is enough to get me going, but put them two together and uh, you're in trouble. But look, on a cold day like this, what could be better than to talk about Cuba, right? <laughs> ah, Cuba, Cuba, most days, I can tell you from experience, there's a shimmering sunlight that washes over Cuba. It's a light so exquisite that artists have told me that there's nothing like it in the whole world. Despite the brilliance of that light, however, mystery clings to Cuba. That legendary place that can be so hard to get to we as Americans know that, and even harder to understand. After nearly a half a century, good God, of reporting on events there and living as part of the extended Cuban family, as Tim mentioned, my wife Miriam was sent out at the dawn of the revolution when she was just a child, came to the United States. I'm still trying to unravel some of that enduring mystery about Cuba. And for me, it's best expressed by a Cuban conundrum that goes something like this, okay? If things are as good as they say, as they're often portrayed down in Cuba, with, let's see, we could all do it, free education, free universal medical care, low rents, subsidized food, and all the promises of socialist equality, a society where everyone is equal, as well as shelter from the furies of capitalism. Why, if that's the case, why have so many Cubans risked everything to flee? Throwing themselves into the shark-infested straits of Florida in rickety rafts, or more recently, just this year especially, making the treacherous journey through Central America to the southern border of the United States to live in, of all places, the imperialist empire demonized by the Cuban regime every day for the last 60 plus years. But then the other half of the conundrum asks a question that's similarly puzzling. So why, if things are as bad as they are often portrayed, what with shortages of everything from milk and meat to cigarettes and even sugar in Cuba, with blackouts lasting a half a day or longer, hospitals lacking basic medicines, classrooms without trained teachers, with repression, censorship, coercion, and intimidation by the state shadowing every Cuban every day, why in heaven's name haven't the Cuban, Cuban people tossed out their oppressors as happened in so many other communist regimes? 
that this riddle has persisted for so long, I would say, is due in large measure to the way the Castro regime, Fidel, his brother, and all the rest of them, have brilliantly played its propaganda hand over the decades, soliciting global sympathy as the victim of imperial brutality. They have convinced millions outside Cuba, all around the world, that life there would indeed be ideal if not for the Yankee embargo. Contributing to this persistent misunderstanding about Cuba is the lack of fair and unbiased reporting from there. The regime tightly controls press coverage. In fact, as the Knight Center for Journalism says here in this report, and you could go to the Committee for the Protection of Journalists and many others, it is one of the most repressive and most censored states in the world. Um, the, the regime tightly controls press coverage, harasses independent journalists who have been brave enough to start using the internet over the last few years to get some reporting done, and limits access to foreign correspondents. I felt their rage this summer when, for the first time since publishing The Cubans, I tried to go back to see the people who are written about, who I wrote about in the book. I was detained at the airport in Havana, refused entry into the country, and summarily escorted by uniformed officials back onto the next jet to the United States, unable to deliver the medicine uh, and food that I had brought with me. What it says, if you don't uh, read Spanish, is orden uh, retiro, basically your exit paper. Get out and don't come back. Persona non grata. No explanation, uh, and I tr I've tried to get an explanation from the embassy. There is none, but there probably needs not be one. It's obvious what happened. The bleak conditions that I reported on in the Cubans made clear that the reason so many Cubans have opted to escape, and this year alone more than 150,000 have crossed the U.S. southern border this year, more than Mariel. And you remember that from 1981, uh, 1980. Uh, the reason is that no amount of propaganda no, uh, no amount of censorship can hide the fact that things, going back to the conundrum, haven't been good there for a very long time. One of the most common misperceptions I encounter is that the revolution of 1959 pulled Cuba out of poverty and misery. Even as small a country as Cuba is, at that time it had about 6 million people in the 1950s, it is a diverse and complicated place. Was there poverty, especially in rural Cuba, before Castro? The answer, unquestionably, is yes. And this photo, and don't attack me, but this photo is used by Cuba's foreign ministry to make that point. This is from the Ministry of Foreign Relations of Cuba, their website, saying, look at what existed there. But the truth as always, is much more complicated than that. In many ways, Cuba, at least in its cities in the 1950s, was an advanced, economically developed country with a high standard of living. I always encourage people at talks like this that they should consider the 1950, that the 1950s were very different here in the United States 
as well as they were in Cuba. And that the best way to consider things is not to compare today to where Cuba was in 1959. Of course, there's been some advancement. But to consider what Cuba might be today had the revolution not occurred, or at least not taken the direction it took. So I ask you to consider this. Of course, there's selected scenes. But I think the idea that, that Cuba was a poor, undeveloped country before is just not a sustainable truth. The fact that there was poverty in the countryside, yes. But I can tell you without any hesitation, I've been there myself, and I've seen it, and it still exists, just as there's still poverty in the countryside here and in the city. So let's, let's just... Um, move ahead and and say, I don't know, how, how many have been to, to Cuba or Havana? Right. Undoubtedly, in, in your trips, they took you to Havana Vieja, right? And Havana Vieja is, like, beautiful. Uh, but once you go outside of the Havana Vieja of tourists, um, the capital of all Cubans, which is what they call Havana, barely resembles what you just saw. This is more like what you would see once you go two blocks over from the main streets. And conditions there and across the island uh, are as bad or worse than they have ever been. Cuba is reeling from the pandemic shutdown, which dried up the tourism on which it has become increasingly dependent. There is a lack of petroleum to keep the generating stations open or to refine the gasoline and diesel fuel that they need to keep the buses and trucks rolling so people can get to work. Even some of these notorious camellos that they had during the special period in the 1990s when, uh, imagine, the temperature in Cuba even today is probably 86 or 88 degrees. Those things are packed with people and there's no air conditioning and the windows hardly open and you're stuck in there and you can't get out. The shortages of food and medicine and the long blackouts, the general dismay over the future, reminds many Cubans who lived through it of the special period that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union and the withdrawal of the billions of dollars in subsidies from the Soviet Union on which the revolution uh, had been nursed. The desperation of the Cuban people then, in 1994, spilled over with public demonstrations, the first public demonstrations against Castro and his government. The protest on the seawall, the Malecon, in Havana, now called the Maleconazo, was quickly put down. It lasted a few hours one afternoon. Scenes like this appeared on CNN, but not in Cuba. Within hours, the street was quiet. Fast forward to last July, July 2021, when demonstrations broke out in Havana and in dozens of cities across Cuba. People fed up with the shortages, with the repression, marched in the streets, in all of those cities, shouting, Libertad, and ominously for the regime, shouting, we are not afraid. The government responded brutally, hauling away protesters. Eventually, hundreds were convicted of public disorder, some convicted of assault and even sedition, and sentenced to long prison terms, including juveniles, 16-year-old kids. But that hasn't stopped the people 
not completely. Last month, after Hurricane Ian knocked out power for days in the western portion of the country, people amassed in the streets again. Power was out for uh, three days, and when it came back, it was still out for most of the day, although they had some electricity. Each time the Cubans go out in the street, they become bolder, they become rowdier, they become less afraid. They tell me, we've got nothing else to lose. There's nothing more that they can take away from us. Um, it's common now to see them hurling stones and bottles at police cars, some of the bottles filled with excrement. Uh, putting up barricades in the street and being out in the street in all hours of the day or night, banging pots and shouting their demands. Without, uh, without elections or the right to protest legally, Cubans have been left with few options other than civil disobedience. The government is intent on preventing the demonstrations from gaining momentum like those in Iran, uh, like the protesters in Iran are doing now. In many ways, they act as if they're frightened. The government today is run nominally by a 60-something-year-old, the guy in the white Guayabera, a party hack named Miguel Diaz-Canel, hand-picked to succeed Raul Castro, the, the older guy with the glasses, sunglasses, as both president and head of the very powerful, all-powerful Communist Party. Raul is 91 still wearing his uniform. Other old men around him, Ramiro Valdez and Machado, Jose Machado Ventura, are in their 90s. And they continue to have a say in the way Cuba is run. And by all accounts, Cuba is run badly. Even Fidel, before he died, said the system was not working. Uh, just something as basic as the currency. At that time, uh, there were two different kinds of currencies until this year when it were, they were unified under the Cuban peso, which started out at the beginning of the year with an official exchange rate of 24 pesos to the dollar. Today, it's worth about 200 pesos to the dollar, meaning half a penny. With inflation raging, salaries simply cannot keep up. Cuba maintains a system of food rationing, limiting the amount of food each family can purchase at heavily subsidized rates in the libreta. But the allotment each family gets each month through the libreta lasts for a few days. For the rest of the month, food has to be purchased outside at market prices, placing a lot of it out of reach. And the truth is, no matter how much money you have, some things are simply not available. This is a common sight. Shelves are just empty. Pharmacies unstocked. Cuban agriculture has collapsed. Basically, before 1959, before 1959, Cuba produced 80% of the food it consumed. Today, it has to import at least 80%. Of, the food, of what it needs to fill it, feed its 11 million residents. Even rice and sugar, two Cuban staples that once were so plentiful on the island, now are imported. I can't imagine what Cubans think when they see a bag of rice, uh, a bag of rice from Vietnam. That's been a while, but a bag of sugar from France in Cuba? Oof. My God. 
The health system that you undoubtedly have heard so much about is struggling. It's now common for Cubans to have to bring pillows and sheets with them if they have to spend time in a hospital, uh, along with food. Medicine is in short supply, and essential medical equipment, even something as simple as x-rays and pacemakers, simply are not available. This is a, uh, a prescription receipt that I, I found down there. And what it says down here on the bottom is health services in Cuba are free, but they cost. Uh, yeah, um, because there's nothing that's really free, right? The Cuban peso now so undervalued, Cubans are all chasing after dollars. But without American tourists, the primary source of dollars is remittances from family and uh, family and friends in the US and Spain and other countries. But here's the rub. Many of those who fled Cuba since 1959 have been white, resulting in white families who are there receiving more likely to receive money, two and a half times more likely to receive money than black families because they simply don't have anyone in the other countries who's capable of sending it back. There aren't that many. So how do I get all of this information into a book for Americans, many who have grown up with a completely different view, generally a sympathetic view, of the Cuban Revolution? I decided to do it from the point of view of ordinary people in an ordinary town. And we can spend the whole day talking about what ordinary means and, and how you do that, but work with me on this. I vowed not to focus, the important thing is I vowed not to focus on Fidel or Che, even though Che is not Cuban, he's associated with Cuba, uh, but in fact on the kind of people who have never been heard from here and whose voices have been silenced there in Cuba. To make the book readable, I chose to locate it in a single town. Uh, a single town, and the town I chose was near Havana, that's so well known, but across the harbor from Havana in a place called Guanabacoa, where tourists almost never stray. Never ran, in three years, I never ran into another American while I was there. To get there from Havana, and only places where you probably were, uh, it only takes about six minutes on this little ferry called the Lanchita. It cost pennies. But in that time, uh, you move from one world to another. The Lanchita, in 1994, was hijacked so often by Cubans attempting to flee to Florida that for decades, until I, just until I began working on the book in 2017, uh, the government limited the amount of fuel that uh, could be pumped into the lanchita to just a few liters, meaning it only had enough to get back and forth uh, and then had to refill. And you could prevent it from ever, anybody ever attempting to try to take it to, uh, to Florida. Um, one of them actually made it. Um, and in one case, one guy who was on it was uh, intercepted by the Coast Guard, U.S. Coast Guard. The Coast Guard asked anybody who wanted to go to the United States to come on board. His mother was ill, so he stayed on board, went back to Cuba. The next day, it was hijacked again. Uh, and uh, he ended up being on the, if you read the book, he was on the, uh, the tugboat when it sank. But because he knew how to swim, he survived. 
uh, let's see, in uh, Wanabakoa, I found a working class community that, like many others in Cuba, had seen better days. If it's known for anything, it's its mix of religions, uh, from the, the white-clad uh, Santeria woman, she's, she's training to be a saint, and um, the large and now rapidly deteriorating Catholic churches. Wanabakoa is also home to Abakua. Uh, Palo Monte and other cults that blend Catholic imagery with traditions brought from Africa by enslaved people centuries ago. The nearby refineries, once owned by Exxon and Shell uh, and confiscated by the Cuban government in 1960, resulting in the embargo that's still in place today, uh, at times cast a dark and choking cloud over the city, a city of about 100,000 inhabitants. There's still some farmland on the outskirts, and it's not unusual to see a, a, a donkey or a horse and cart in the streets, but the, uh, the colonial heart of the city is a traditional mix of Spanish and Caribbean styles. This is interesting. In the years since Raul Castro took over and opened up the state-controlled economy, he timidly allowed Cubans to open some businesses. Right? They had to be businesses that were on this list that they put out. Guanabacoa was an entrepreneurial hotbed, kind of like Brooklyn, right? a, a, a factory where, th where things could get going. Uh, but it also showed the limitations of the experiment. Cubans could buy a license to become self-employed entrepreneur. It's a big change from the purely communist system they had. But lacking skills in business or any kind of basic business training, many opted to become just street vendors, where the only requirements were a cart. You needed to have a cart. But even that loomed large in the country without a wholesale market. There's no Home Depot in Cuba to go to to buy a set of wheels for your cart. So enterprising Cubans steal the wheels from the garbage carts. Um, and you can see they, uh, these things were, were almost new uh, in Guanabacoa. I saw them come in because people were complaining about the garbage. They brought them in, uh, filled them up. Uh, one morning I came by and all the wheels were gone. In another week, the bins were gone too. They take them and they chop them up and they grind them down the plastic and they use it to make shoes and toys. The people I met in Wanabakoa, uh, here's really the heart of my story, uh, and who are featured in the book, may be leading ordinary lives, but they are all in one way or another possessed of extraordinary stories. So let me introduce you to Maria del Carmen, a widow who lives in the same house in Wanabakoa, purchased by her great-grandmother who came from Spain uh, and purchased the house after the 1898 Spanish-American-Cuban War. She, Maria de Carmen, never embraced the communist system that expected her to denounce her Catholic religion. She suffered uh, discrimination because of her faith. It affected her for her whole working life. But she's managed to balance, and this is one of the things I was looking for, how do you live in a system that you don't uh, support? She did it, balancing her unhappiness with an astounding devotion to, of all things, classical Spanish dance, which she teaches to younger Cuban girls. So I was there for their uh, end of the season performance. 
two blocks from Maria del Carmen, on the other side of Los Escolapios uh, Church, I encountered Arturo Montoto, a renowned Cuban painter who started in Pinar del Rio, the area that was just devastated by the hurricane, with nothing from a, a poor family on a farm. And with the help of the regime, uh, was trained in Moscow at the Superior Institute of Art and has now uh, built an art studio, of all things, in Guanabacoa. It was he who told me that he struggled to paint when he was not beneath the Cuban sun. And yet, all is not bright for Montoto, who hides his resentment against the regime inside his paintings and sculptures. While I was there, he opened an exhibit in Havana that he called Dark. I don't know if you can appreciate how dark that painting is. Uh, and one of the sculptures that he did was this, um, three feet across, gigantic black egg, which has a special meaning in a country where eggs are always rationed. So imagine a three-foot egg when you can only buy three uh, or five per, per week. Not far from Montoto's studio, I met Lily Hernandez, who has never known any government other than the current one. She is a member of the Communist Party. She is president of the local committee for the defense of the revolution, which is basically uh, the regime's eyes and ears on every street in every neighborhood. And she cried when Fidel died. She's a proud communist, she told me, but one day she'd like to go to the US just to see what it is that draws in so many Cubans. Her son, Joseito, uh, now about 40, took out a license, one of those licenses I mentioned, as a furniture repair, repairer. And he gets some of his raw material by slicing up used truck tires that he scavenges from the highways. Unlike his mother, Joseito is fed up with the revolution. For him, its failures far outweigh its achievements. And his fondest dream, he told me, is that his two young daughters live anywhere but Cuba. At the Methodist Church in central Guanabacoa, I met Jorge Garcia, Jorjito, and talked to him about what it's like to be young in Cuba. While he was thoroughly invested in his church, he harbored dreams, he told me, of saving enough money to leave Cuba someday, as did his father and grandfather. The elder Garcia, also named Jorge, left Guanabacoa in 1999 after a horrific incident that I relate in the book in which 14 members of his family, including another son and grandson, drowned when they attempted to reach Florida in that government tugboat that I mentioned before that was rammed and sunk by Cuban officials. Garcia lives in Miami now and continues to fight every day to bring justice to his family. Uh, he never received a death certificate for his son or any of the others. The Cuban officials simply say they disappeared. And they've never acknowledged what they did. Finally, around the corner from Lily Hernandez, not far from Montoto or Maria del Carmen, I met Caridad, 
and Jesus Fidel, otherwise known as people, the most extraordinary people leading these ordinary lives. Gadi's life traces the arc of the revolution itself. She was born in 1956, December of 1956, three weeks after Fidel landed in the southeastern coast and uh, on an old fishing boat called Grandma and began his insurrection. As a black Cuban woman, she benefited from the early achievements of the revolution. She was sent along with thousands of other Cuban students to university in the Soviet bloc to study. In Kiev, in Ukraine, she met and married people and also got her uh, advanced degree in economics. They returned to Cuba. They both joined the Communist Party. She rose to become vice minister of light industry for the entire country and was a high-ranking member of the National Party. But eventually, she saw through the promises of the revolution, realizing that the equality she had hoped for, that she believed in when she got on that ship, had not been delivered. And she gave up everything, her state car, her phone, her uh, computer, uh, and all the privileges that went with it. She left government, she left the party, and became a self-employed entrepreneur. She told me uh, she now runs this um, seamstress shop in central Havana, employing several other women. She told me one afternoon after I'd known her for several years, and she was confident that I would protect her story, uh, protected by putting it out there. They all knew that I was writing the book and I was going to use their real names. And they said, yes, do it. Tell the story. Um, she told me that for her, the revolution that she once believed in so heartily is lost. But her love for Cuba is undiminished. She doesn't know what's going to happen next. Nobody does. But many are not waiting to find out. Her only son, Oscar, encouraged by the Obama opening with Cuba in 2015, started his own design business, filled with optimism that Cuba was opening and leaving space for young people to dream about the future. I watched him hustle to find wholesale supplies and build up business contacts in Wanabacoa and in Havana. But by 2018, it was so difficult for him to work that he decided to leave Cuba, and here he is at the airport saying goodbye to his mother the last time he was in Cuba. He's now living in Florida, where with other young Cubans, in just a short time he's opened his own graphics business, and he has no intention of returning to Cuba. My wife, Miriam, um, returned from Cuba last Tuesday, just last week, completing the mission I had started last summer before I was uh, detained at the airport and expelled. She delivered that suitcase of medicine um, that I tried to bring. She visited with Gadi, people, Maria del Carmen, Lily, Montoto, and all the others. Each one of them told her that conditions there are as bad or worse than they'd ever seen. So what happens next? The breach between the people and the government clearly is widening. Will things change once, once Raul Castro is no longer on the scene? Will the army, which now runs most of the Cuban economy, demand changes to open up in order to protect their own incomes? Forget about socialism. They're worried about their own hides. More important, will the dissatisfied Cubans out in the street ever be able to gain momentum? 
creating a, a volatile movement that will force the government to change or leave. We don't know. Anybody who tells you they know uh, is lying, because they don't know. What we do know is that the inventiveness and adaptability that the Cuban people have shown so vividly over the last half century and so vividly in Miami, where they've remade the city, will continue to guide them. This is a photograph I love because it really captures that spirit of adaptability and, and striving on, repurposing the plastic soda bottle as the gas tank on this Frankenstein of a motorcycle. And actually, I like this one too, because it proves that no matter how severe the shortage is, even when there's no gasoline for cars or no cars at all, and no boxes for cake, and no gift cards in the stores, and no stores that sell gift cards, there's still a way to celebrate a birthday and to hope that at some point in the future, things might get better. And it's part of the spirit, not just of Cuban people, I think all people have that spirit, but when you're under a system like that for so long, it, the only way to survive is to have that. So um, let's, uh, let's open it up. I'd like to finish there, and uh, hopefully we have plenty of time, or not so much time, depends how long you want to stay, uh, to go ahead. Thank you very much for that. Um, that, was, that was a fascinating tour through our current state of Cuba. I wanted to ask you about the embargo. It's been going on for 60 years. What is the best move here? Is it to ease restrictions, as Obama had started to do during his time? Uh, you know, then Trump reversed that. Um, I don't think we really know for sure, you know, what course Biden is going to follow. He seems to be inclined to reverse, to ease it up a little bit, and has given some money for uh, Hurricane Ian relief. Um, what's the best move here, both for us and for the Cuban people? Yeah. Uh, good question, and the embargo is always at the heart of things. And really, uh, the, the United States' involvement with Cuba is over a century, right, since 1898. Uh, and depending on which book you read, it goes way back uh, even to uh, Benjamin Franklin, right? The embargo, you have to understand that the embargo is now law. It's not a, a presidential initiative. It's not something that Obama or Biden or anybody else can simply wave away. What, what they can do is sort of poke holes in it, which is what Obama did during, uh, during his administration. Actually, George Bush poked a huge hole through it in 2004 when he allowed the sale of food and medicine to Cuba under one condition, that the sales had to be in cash because Cuba is a debtor nation, that they owe everybody money, including the Russians. Uh, including the Chinese, including the Paris Club, including the London, the Club of London. And they owe money to everybody. Um, so what, the chances of changing it, right, so this is during the, the Clinton administration, 1996, Helms-Burton law, it's now law, the law of the land. You have to get Congress to change it to lift the embargo. But, but That's not going to happen. But if it be changed, what would, would there be any benefit to, to maintaining it or, you know, to change well, it? Well, all right, so it's been in for 60 years. It hasn't achieved its purpose because Castro is still there. Yeah. Uh, but what it has done is it's given those guys who I showed you in the regime 
an excuse mm -hmm. to say to the Cuban people and to everybody else in the world, we're like this because of them. Mm -hmm. And so the argument goes, and I think it's a legitimate one, uh, the best thing to do to get rid of this regime is not to keep the embargo, but to lift it. But there are political reasons. You know, that doesn't go down well in Florida, South Florida, where there are conservative Cubans who see any attempt to work at all or anything that might benefit the regime as being um, uh, simply unacceptable. I, I was curious about the collapse of agriculture um, and the fact that where they used to produce 80% um, of their food, they now have to import 80%. Why, why did that happen? Um, that didn't even happen in Russia. They still managed to have collective farms. Um, is part of it because they were no longer sending people for training to uh, the Soviet Union and then later to other Eastern countries? No, no. It's uh, the answer as uh, every question anybody may ask. The answer is always it's complicated, right? It's complicado. Um, in this case, you had a system that that removed all incentives mm -hmm. to produce. Right, so the farmers were given an allotment, they uh, raised that allotment of food and nothing more because they weren't able to sell it. They weren't able to use it in any way, so they, they did that. Land went fallow. Uh, there's an invasive species of weed called marabu that has sort of ta it's eaten the island. It's every, every field that went fallow is now filled with this stuff. It's very hard to get out. The only thing it's good for is they are now exporting charcoal. They burn it and they, they sell it as charcoal, uh, Cuban charcoal. Uh, you can't find it in too many places, and you certainly won't find it in Florida, but they, they do that. But it's basically, it's, the land has gone fallow because it hasn't been used. They don't have the money because of the way they're managing the economy to buy tractors and to buy fuel. So they basically return to sort of organic farming done on a very basic level with uh, oxen and plows and, and hand tools. So there's no way to produce That's enough food. That's just subsistence farming, right? That's not... Well, they, 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 yes, when you import 80% of your food, mm -hmm. right, uh, you're not producing enough. The population has also grown. It was 6 million then. It's now 11 million. So they would need to do more. But they live in a country that is fabulously fertile, mm -hmm. has tremendous weather. They could easily, like in Mexico, have two harvests a year or more. And they don't. A big part of the problem is uh, the economy is simply mismanaged. When you have generals running hotels and, and agriculture and other things, they may know how to give a command, but they don't know anything about providing incentives. Is there uh, much crime on the island? Uh, street crime, like you might find here, I've never experienced it in, in 50 years. I've never had any kind of thing like that. But the the situation down there has deformed the, the morality of Cubans. So stealing, in the term that you and I are using, goes on every day. It's part of, of surviving. Mm. If you work in the paint factory, you steal a gallon of paint and you use that to bribe the dentist or the doctor so that you can get your kid with an ear infection in to see him mm. before everybody else. If you work in the hospital and you're given a bucket of water and a, a gallon of 
bleach, the first thing you do is empty half of the gallon of bleach into another container that you then sell to somebody else, and you pour the bleach into, half of the bleach into the water. When you finish using it, you put some of it back in the, it goes on all the time. It's not stealing in the mind of the people who have to do this every day. It's, it's adapting. It's adapting and surviving. Resolviendo. Mm -hmm. Is the term they use. Catch us up a little bit on um, the protest movement Patria y Vida that we heard about last year. Um, not so much this year. Is it still? Is it still going on? You know, I. It was. Uh, I, I think it was given a little bit more credence than it really deserved because it was easy to understand. Mm. You know, there were young people. They had a song. It was a real great video, I think it won a Grammy, um, but the truth of the matter is it, 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 the significance of it is that there were young uh, black and mulatto uh, kids who were protesting, and these are the people who ideally, and in the propaganda, were the ones who were supposed to most benefit from the revolution. Like Caridad. So the fact that they are out there protesting in the same way is, is such an assault on the whole ideal of the revolution that they, they really had to come down hard. I think you know the guys in it have had trouble. The artists are still out there, but I don't look for, I don't look to them as the ones who are going to really bring change. It's going to come from the people in the street. It's going to come from the people who are just fed up and really had it. Because those young people, although they might be protesting now, you know what their dream is from the time that they were old enough to dream, is to get out. That's it. There's, there's, no, there's nobody um, younger than 30 or less. I mean, 40, okay, uh, who has any intention of staying. Uh, you just, you scheme, you save, you do whatever you can to get out in whichever way you can. Do they have access to um, social media? You mentioned before that yes. uh, this woman wondered what it was like uh, in the United States and what the appeal was. What is their level of access to outside information? You know, the, the regime is run by old men. Mm -hmm. I don't think they really understand what uh, the internet is or can do, and you know, people are like always asking for it. And during the uh, Obama opening, Google went down there, and you know, they started providing more stuff. So, generally, uh, young people all have a phone. Uh, probably 3G, maybe maybe 4G. Some mm -hmm. places they have Wi-Fi hotspots that you can go. The internet is censored down there, mm -hmm. but it's you can't censor the internet the way you can censor a newspaper, right? So uh, people bring in they they would bring in like a what they a thumb drive filled with stuff from Miami and then reproduce it, they call it El Paquete. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have money, you can buy uh, a phone. They, the Cubans, some Cubans have visas, and they, you don't have to have the white letter anymore to, to get out of the country. You can go to Panama if you intend to come back. And some people come back not because they love the country, but because they can make money. They come back with phones that they pay uh, $200 for in Panama, and they sell them for $500 uh, there. Um, so the, 
the internet access is not complete. Most people don't have it at home. Uh, you have to go to a Wi-Fi hotspot outside. If you have 4G, maybe you can get on. But it is really a significant aspect of where things are today. Because that July 11th, it could not have happened without people getting that, those scenes on uh, the internet so that people in other cities could see that it's not me. The real fear for all people is not that they're afraid to go out and say, Libertad is that they're afraid to be out there and then look behind them and find that there's nobody there.